This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome back to the show where every week we go exploring in the pursuit of awesome. You can count on us to keep you informed of all the best shiny things out there when we share our awesome of the week. In each episode, we also take your questions and bring you the answers you need to help you uncover all the awesome within your own life. This week, Rebecca is here to co-host and we are talking about the awesome practice of building a loving environment at home. We're going to talk love languages, and I give some tips on what to do if you find yourself a little resistant to speaking a certain love language. Later, Rebecca reveals her sanity savers that can help all of us to stay in a loving mindset, no matter how frazzled we might be. And then I'll tell the story of how the very unloving practice of sibling rivalry landed me with a minor injury when I was way too old to be fighting with my sister. All of that, plus our Awesome of the Week, coming up on Episode 17 of Sorta Awesome. Hey, awesome friends. Today, my friend and our pop culture guru, Rebecca, is back in the co-host seat, and we have got a fantastic show for you based on your questions about how to build and create a loving home environment. Now, for those of you who are listening who are single or don't yet have children, please stick with us because we're going to dig into some philosophies and approaches to life that are absolutely not just limited to marriage and parenting. I really think everyone will hear some good stuff today, no matter what season of life you are in. But first, we're going to start things off as we always do with Awesome of the Week. Rebecca, how about you get us started today? My Awesome of the Week is the podcast Mystery Show which is created by Starly Kine. For those who are podcasting junkies like myself, you might be interested to know that Mystery Show is produced by Gimlet Media, which is an Alex Bloomberg podcasting network. And if all of that just went over your head, that's okay. All you need to know is that (laughs) Gimlet Media produces excellent podcasts. Yes. And Mystery Show is their newest one. And it is amazing. I know I'm totally interrupting you, but I'm so excited you chose this for Awesome of the Week because I love Mystery Show. I do too. I do too. Each week on Mystery Show, the host Starly Kine attempts to solve ordinary people's everyday mysteries. On one of my favorite episodes, it's called Vanity Plate, and Starly and her friends spotted a strange vanity license plate years ago, and she attempts to track down the owner of the car and find out exactly what that vanity plate means. Yes, that is a good one. I'm kind of surprised you picked that for one of your favorites. It was. It was just, just everything about the podcast is just, is very engaging. It's very lighthearted. It's, um, it takes moments of, she taps into the emotional aspect with different people that she encounters. I just, I love every single episode, but that one was one of my favorites. What about you, Megan? Um, first I have to say, I adore Starly Kine. I truly want to be her when I grow up. I think she is amazing. She handles this show so well. On the surface, you're like, huh, I, I don't really know if I get the concept. But once you start listening and you experience how she um, goes about solving these mysteries, you will totally get it. So I have two favorites. I don't think I could pick between these top two favorites. But one of them is an episode called Brittany. 
Oh, I liked that one too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There is a segment in that episode that is probably one of my favorite moments in podcasting ever. And that is her conversation with a guy who works at Ticketmaster. And you just have to listen to the episode to hear what that has to do with the mystery being solved. But her approach to that conversation, I don't know, it was just magic for me. And then the other one that I absolutely adore so much is Belt Buckle. In fact, if you're only going to listen to one, that would be my pick. If you needed someplace to start, if you just wanted to check it out, check out the Belt Buckle episode. The story is so interesting and so compelling. And I have to tell you that I was in tears by the end of that episode. I mean, not sad tears, just happy, big feelings in the best possible way kind of tears. It really was sweet. Starly herself, she's just sweet. She just gives off this persona of somebody that you would want to sit and have coffee with and connect yeah. with. She's She sounds just absolutely adorable. And I love, I just love listening to it. Now, Megan, she actually takes like requests for mysteries to be solved. Yes. So I'm wondering if you could ask, <laughs> ask Starly to solve any mystery in your life, what would it be? Okay, I've given this some thought, and (laughs) this is so goofy, but I'm going to tell you a little story that ends with a mystery that I really would love for Starly to take on. Many years ago, many, many years ago, back in the late 80s, a show came on the air called Unsolved Mysteries. Did you ever watch Unsolved Mysteries? (laughs) Oh, no way. This show like freaked me out. I could not handle (laughs) that show. Well, it was on too late at night. I could not watch it. It would just... Oh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. To this day, when I hear the opening music for it, I get completely freaked out. In fact, when I was a full-grown adult, a newlywed, they would still show reruns on some channel, Lifetime or something, I don't know. I could not watch it when I was home alone. And I was a full-grown adult at that moment in time. (laughs) Okay, but anyway... When the show first started many years ago, my sister and I, my parents maybe maybe shouldn't have been letting us watch it, but we were. And a segment came on of Unsolved Mysteries where they showed a bathroom. I want to say it was in a Toys R Us store somewhere. And this bathroom was supposedly haunted. My sister and I got so freaked out by the story of the haunted Toys R Us bathroom that we would not go in a public restroom in any environment, whether it was in a church, a shopping mall, wherever it was, we would not go in there alone because on that segment of uh, Unsolved Mysteries, this haunted bathroom had sink faucets that would turn themselves on by themselves. Like the water would start running and nobody was in there. And so we would, <laughs> we would insist that somebody come in to the bathroom with us to make, I don't know what, what, what would happen if some, if the faucet so just turned for, on, I don't know. It's not like we could so stop how, it. How many years did you avoid <laughs> like, being alone in the bathroom? Like well into our teenage years. <laughs> we just would not do it. And so what I would love for Starly to do is maybe dig up into the archives, go into the dark, the archives of um, Unsolved Mysteries, dig up that case. Are we remembering it correctly? Was it a Toys R Us? Did the bathroom faucets turn on by themselves? And then also, are there any other documented cases of haunted bathrooms, public restrooms? Is there a rational or logical explanation for why a public restroom faucet would turn itself on? These are things I would love to know the answer to, but I don't, I, I'm not prepared as Starly is to go digging to find (laughs) Megan, I am sitting here in awe because I now too also want to know the answers to all those questions. I really think you should submit this. Oh, maybe. (laughs) I really do. You know, maybe this whole like fear is the whole source behind women as in general, as this cultural phenomenon that women always go to the bathroom together. Yes. Maybe it's deeply rooted in that. Just in case it's haunted. Just in case I want somebody in there with me. <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. And so much better than my mystery. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Let's hear it. What's, what would your ideal mystery for Starly to solve be? Well, my house was built in 1856 which makes it 159 years old. And so I would just love to know 
the origin of who had the house built, oh. what's their life story, who was born here, who died here. I don't know if I really want to know that. Um, Are the we bathrooms have, haunted? Exactly. <laughs> no, please do not tell me that. Um, our our house has um, two staircases, the main staircase, and then there's one that's actually in the back of our kitchen that goes up to a bedroom. And we've been told that that was probably servants' quarters to have like that spare set of stairs that they can go up and down. I just think it would be fascinating to learn all about the details of who used to live in my house, which is not nearly as interesting. I'm so <laughs> mad at you. It's not nearly as interesting as your bathroom mystery. I really want to know. I, you have got, please, when we get, okay. when we are done recording, yes. submit that. I'm on it. Yes. Okay. I will do it. And if it meant getting to talk to Starly, honestly, what do I have to lose, really? Oh, nothing. Win-win. <laughs> okay. That was a fantastic, awesome, and I am 100% in agreement with you. Mystery show, totally awesome. Definitely so, worth it. So worth the time to check out. Okay. Well, my awesome of the week. Now, I realize I'm talking a lot about music lately, and I don't know. Maybe it's summertime. I don't know. Do you have seasons of life where you're more into music than others? Oh, most definitely. Okay. Well, yeah. I guess I'm just having a music moment um, because last week on the show, when I was talking to Rachel Ann Ridge, I mentioned Joy Williams' new album, Venus, as my awesome of the week. So I'm still talking about music this week. This is a playlist on Spotify that I just found in the past week, and I am loving it. Okay. Stop right there for a moment. <laughs> Explain to me like exactly what Spotify is is i mean i think i know what it is but like i've never <laughs> used it before rebecca you wait you have literally never used spotify it's an app right like i don't well, i didn't i've never downloaded it sort you, of i mean it's more than an app it's it's um first of all it's a company spotify is a company it's a streaming music service okay right and so, so uh, through Spotify, you can you. I have it installed on my laptop. That's how I listen to it mostly. But yes, there is an app that you can put on your mobile device as well. And the great thing about Spotify, the thing that people love the most, I think, about Spotify is that you can create your own playlist. They have an expansive library of music to choose from. And so you create your own playlists. I have a dozen of them at least that it's just, you know, whatever, like it's a playlist, whatever songs you want to put on there. So now, like, what's so that's the difference between it, Spotify, and Pandora? Right, right, right. Because Pandora chooses the music for you. Pandora says, "Oh, you like George Strait music? Here, we'll we will build you a playlist based on your interest in George Strait." Okay. Right. Spotify says, "You know what you like, so here, have access to all of this music for free and make your own playlist." But my awesome of the week, what, another thing that Spotify does is they also build playlists. Um, the, the music geniuses at Spotify, they'll take a theme and then build a whole playlist around that particular theme. So this playlist that I found is called Acoustic Covers. And if I can figure out how to do it, I will try to pop a link into the show notes if you want to find it. But I think if you just search on Spotify, you should be able to find there. It's the Spotify created, not a user created, but it's one created by Spotify called Acoustic Covers. It has 99 songs on it. And it is all of these um, incredible musicians who are doing covers of famous and well-known songs that are all acoustic covers. And I love it. That is so my bag. Totally. Acoustic covers of fun songs. I'm loving it. So since there's 99 songs on it, that's a lot of music. I'm right, just going to tell you my top three favorites that I'm loving so much from that playlist. Number three is John Mayer's cover of Free Fallen. Fantastic. Oh. So fun. He he brings his own John Mayer style to that classic song from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and it is fantastic. Um, number two is a cover, an acoustic cover of The Safety Dance. Oh, what? The Safety Dance. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it, Rebecca. <laughs> Oh, come on. I have sang on your podcast so know many you times. have, but you're a performer. I am not. Um, not a singer. We can dance if you want to. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. We don't have the rights. <laughs> <laughs> you're 
you're using that as an excuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, there's, a, there's an acoustic cover of The Safety Dance by Sleeping at Last, which is one of my very favorite bands, actually. It's so beautiful. You don't think that the song, The Safety Dance, could be beautiful, but in the hands of Sleeping at Last, it is gorgeous. Sleeping at Last also does a cover of that song, 500 Miles. I would walk 500 Miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do a cover of that that is stunning as well. So fantastic. Oh, well, I, you have sold me. I want to listen. Uh-huh. Yes, you should. And you need to figure out how to use Spotify, Rebecca. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's okay. 2015. You're killing me. Okay. My very favorite song from this playlist that I would not have discovered otherwise. I am listening to it almost on repeat. I love it so much. Imagine Dragons did a cover of Taylor Swift's Blank Space. And Mm. at the end, randomly, they break into Stand By Me. So it becomes this Blank Space Stand By Me mashup. Oh my gosh. I love it. I cannot stop listening to it. It is incredibly awesome. So the Acoustic Covers playlist on Spotify, my awesome of the week. Fantastic. I'm sold. Okay. Well, now that we have covered awesome of the week, let's go ahead and move into our question and answer segment, which we do every week. This week, we thought we would gather some questions. We already had some listener questions that we've been thinking about covering on the show for a while. And some of them really spoke to the idea of what we need to do to create and build a really loving atmosphere in our homes. And again, I know when we talk about this, maybe your first thought goes to marriage issues. Maybe your first thought goes to parenting issues. And that's very legit. That's what we tend to think of. But absolutely, you can be a single person who is very invested in the idea of creating your own space, your own home where people feel loved and accepted and feel like they're really known. So we're talking about friendships. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about parenting stuff. So I am going to start with a pretty recent question that somebody submitted through the Tumblr. Just as a reminder, anytime you have a question that you would like for us to cover on the show, you can go to sortaawesomemegan.tumblr.com and click on the Ask Us link, and that will take you to a page where you can type in your question. This particular question is anonymous. You can submit it anonymously if you want, or you can leave your name either way. So the question is this. I recall you, Megan, mentioning you like praise and affirmations. I'm also an ENFP. I honestly can't stand being praised publicly. Privately is okay, but I still feel really uncomfortable. And I also fail so much at praising other people, especially if they're the kind of people who love it and are expecting it. Does that make sense? I'm married to someone who needs affirmation, and I'm so bad at giving it. Why is this? Can anyone relate? And do you have tips on how to deal? So when I read this question, the first thing I'm thinking is love languages, the five love languages. Rebecca, are you familiar with five love languages? Yes. Yes. I have read the book. It's a book by Gary Chapman. Yes. And it's very helpful, I feel like, in helping to navigate how you best receive love and how... um, the best way that you give love to other people. Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what it is. It's a book that came out actually 20 years ago. I looked it up. It came out in 1995, 20 years ago. Gary Chapman released his book, The Five Love Languages, and it was really pretty revolutionary. Now, um, I feel like it's kind of become mainstream culture, but a lot of churches really use um, his ideas in this to kind of talk about and teach on relationship stuff. So if you are not inside a church context, this may be new information. If you are, you maybe have heard of these. But just as an overview, the five love languages that um, Gary Chapman talks about, and also I want to make a note to say beyond the book, now you can go to fivelovelanguages.com, and that's actually the number five, and then lovelanguages.com. They have a ton of information. I was just checking it out before we started recording the show, and you can actually go on there. You can um, do like a sort of test or quiz to figure out what your own love language is. You can even take the test to try to figure out your kids' love languages. They have all kinds of options for you online now. So even if you don't have time to or want to pick up a copy of the book, there's still ways that you can kind of navigate and figure out what your love language might be or the love languages of your children. So the five love languages that he covers are words of affirmation, which our listener is speaking to in her question, 
quality time, acts of service, receiving gifts, and physical touch. I think that used to be called affection, but now they call it physical touch. Now, I want to clarify too, this is totally separate from any of the personality stuff that we've talked about. You can be any personality type and have any of these love languages. In fact, what they kind of refer to it on the on the, um, on the the website is they call it your emotional communication preference. Oh. Yeah, fancy, right? <laughs> Ooh la la. <laughs> so that's kind of an overview of this concept that all of us have specific ways. Well, like they said, emotional communication. What are the things that feel like love to you? Because love is this sort of, you know, intangible, ethereal thing. What makes the intangible idea of love feel really tangible to you as a person? And so I guess through the years, um, through his research and study, he has sort of narrowed it down into these five love languages. So let's get back to our listener's question because she asked if we have any tips. And again, just to pull back the lens a a little bit, this doesn't just have to be in marriage. This could be in parenting. This could be in relationships with your sibling, your grown siblings, with your parents, could be friendships. How do you deal when you are in relationship with somebody that you just do not get their love language? And in fact, you maybe feel a little bit resistant to sort of speaking their love language. So my first tip would be to really encourage our listener to really examine why it is for like for our, our listener in in her question, why is it that giving praise to someone who loves it and is expecting it? Why does that bring up some negative emotions for you? Maybe there's a family of origin issue that, you know, for maybe some baggage from your childhood, maybe you had a bad experience in a different environment, like in a job or a different relationship or something. What is, what is it that is sort of pushing your buttons about your husband needing affirmation and you're feeling a little bit resistant to that? Is there an area in your life that you need healing from? And this particular issue is opening an old wound for you. That would be my first tip for our listener. Um, Rebecca, have you encountered that in any um, relationships or situations where you're in relationship with somebody and you just do not get their love language or how to get through to them that you care about them? Well, maybe not quite to that extreme, but my husband's love language is words of affirmation. And that's not something that comes very naturally to me. So it's something that I have to be intentional about. And honestly, a lot of times I fail. And so we have to continue to communicate with each other to try to say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. To, one, one thing that Nate and I say to each other is we often refer to our love tanks. And I don't ah, know if that's uh-huh. a term that, that Gary Chapman um, talks about in his book or if we got that from somewhere else. The idea is that when somebody is feeding you with the appropriate love language that you prefer, it helps to fill up your tank. And then when negative things in life or in your day happen or somebody says something bad to you or whatever, you know, your love tank starts to dwindle down. And when your love tank is empty, that's when you are probably a bit at your worst, feeling really insecure, feeling cranky and crabby, and just really desperate for somebody to help fill you back up. So Nate and I talk often, we refer to our love tanks and just being honest and being able to say to each other, okay, I'm sorry, my love tank just feels empty here today. (laughs) Can you help me out? This isn't working for me. And it has given us a a language to use with each other to help us navigate these differences between the ways that we give and receive love. Absolutely. And that actually leads right into my second tip, which was I was going to say to our listener to really think about and recognize what your own love language is. And it might be that you are feeling particularly unfulfilled or empty in that area. Just like you said, I've heard that phrase too, the the idea of having a love tank. And so maybe some of the resistance here may be that you are not feeling like, you know, your husband or other people in your life are speaking into your life with your love language. So I think right. that's really great, really, really um, encourages strong communication in relationships. Okay. And the third one is to consider this process to truly be like learning a new language and to make it fun and to consider it a challenge. 
in a good way, not a difficult challenge, but to to think about it and to frame it in, this is like learning a new language. I'm going to be a little bit awkward at first. I'm not going to understand exactly everything that's going on, but I just, the more you speak a language that you're learning, the better you get at it. Um, if you ask my husband, Kyle, what his love language is, he would say ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I and love I, it. I know that sounds silly, but he really, and I mean really, loves ice cream like nobody I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Now, the thing about him loving ice cream is that we don't really keep ice cream in the house that much because it gets eaten (laughs) by everybody. And so even when I do buy it, it seems like it's gone very quickly. So for him, yes, he jokingly says his love language is ice cream, but if we're out of ice cream and it's you know, after bedtime, when we're getting ready to settle in for whatever show we're binging on Netflix or whatever, and he is really craving some ice cream. I mean, I have no problem with just hopping in the car and going down to the corner store and picking up some ice cream for him. Now, for me, it's no big deal. But for him, who I suspect really is an acts of service type person, that is saying, I love you enough to sacrifice my own comfort for a little bit to run down to the store and grab some ice cream so that I can fully enjoy my Netflix experience. <laughs> Aw, <that's> sweet. <laughs> Another thing that I do that's sort of a ritual for us, but um, something that he has never asked me to do, but he has to be up by six every morning to do a lot of things to prepare for his work day. And so every morning I get up at about 10 till six and make coffee for both of us. He has never said, I need you to get up in the morning and make coffee. He, first of all, he would mm-hmm. never do that, but he's never in any way, like he's never grumbled about if there's not coffee or anything. But I know how wonderful it is to start the day with a hot cup of coffee. And I know that that's meaningful to him. And it's a a ritual that we have built through the years that I get up and make coffee for us every morning. Some mornings it's easier than others. During the school year, it's actually no big deal because that that means I make sure I'm up before the kids get up and I have some calm and quiet time. During the summer, when we're out of our routines, it's a little bit more of a challenge. It really is. But I know that me bringing him a hot cup of coffee at six every morning speaks love to him in a way that he fully appreciates. So again, there's going to be some moments of sacrifice and kind of like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I just don't get it. That's not my thing. But it's little things like that that can really build such a strong foundation in a relationship. And I wanted to say too, this isn't necessarily a tip, but I actually really do think it's totally normal to resist a love language or a preference in emotional communication. You know, our listener was talking about she resists praise. It makes her feel really awkward. I actually really am the same way about acts of service, which makes it hard because I'm married to an acts of service person. But when people, especially beyond my husband, uh, do nice things for me, I feel really awkward about that. And I, I don't, I mean, I understand that they are showing love to me, but it just, it makes me feel a little bit squirmy. So I think it is very normal and very natural to have certain, there's certain, you know, ways of communicating love to other people that just make you feel like, I just, I would rather you not do that. I think that's totally normal and there's nothing to feel badly about. That's just part of how we're wired. But when you're in a marriage, when you're in, um, you know, a deep friendship and you just, you need to figure out how to unlock, how can I really express to you how important you are to me, how much I love and adore you. It is so worth the effort to invest that time in learning how to speak a new language. I completely agree. And, you know, let's not dismiss the simplicity of putting a reminder on your phone. Yeah. Hey, send hubby or send best friend or send mom a text right now saying, I love you or I appreciate you for X, Y, and Z. You know, sometimes just little reminders, remind yourself. That's part of the learning process of, you know, learning this new language. Absolutely. That is such a great tip and such a great point that it's okay that, that, that this is not your native language of speaking, you know, that this is something really important to me. That's okay. And do what you need to do to remind yourself. That is a fantastic tip. I'm so glad that you added that. Okay. So moving on to our next questions, we did ask in our Facebook group, we are on Facebook in the group section as sort of awesome hangout. We asked who had questions about this idea of how do we create loving home environments? Our friend Beth has a great question that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. She asks, how do you create a loving and peaceful home atmosphere 
when you as a parent are feeling really stressed or moody or grumpy. And then she notes that she's asking for a friend. <laughs> of, course, <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. Is. I'm sure Beth is never grumpy. Again, this can go so far beyond parenting. Not just parents have bad days. It's hard when you're the parent because even if you are having a really bad day, you're still, it's still the mom show, you know? Right. (laughs) The kids can't change the channel. You still got to get in there and do your mom business. So this is definitely a challenging area for a lot of people, I think. Um, So I was just thinking about three things that you can really think to do when you're having a bad day. The first one, I really truly believe in this so much is to just be honest with the people around you, whether it's your coworkers, your kids, your spouse, maybe you're on vacation with your parents, whoever, be honest with the people around you that you're having a bad day and humble yourself enough to say, I need extra patience and extra grace today. That is something that I've had to learn the hard way, (laughs) but I think that it makes such a difference. And I really like to do that with my kids because when I model for them, number one, everyone has bad days, even mom. And number two, I got to use my words instead of just like flying off the handle or just sulking around the house. If I can start with using my words, I am modeling for them what I need for them to do when they're having a bad day. So that instead of throwing blocks at their brother's head, (laughs) if we can like rewind before it gets to that point and just have them be able to say, I am really grumpy today, then I know, okay, this is the child that's going to need some extra grace today. And when I can do that, they are kind of like, okay, mom's in a bad mood. <laughs> right. So, morning, morning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But before it gets to the cuckoo crazy point to just be like, okay, I'm just acknowledging out loud. I'm having a rough day and I need some extra patience here. And the second thing I'll do then is I will sometimes, if it gets really bad, like really to moving towards, like you said, like red lights, flashing, warning, warning moment, <laughs> I will call a mama time in. And I, when the kids were younger, especially now with the twins, I will like put the twins in their high chair with something to color. The girls are old enough to, you know, take care of and entertain themselves for a bit. And I will retreat to my room. I will drink a cup of tea. I will do some meditation. I will sometimes just stare at the ceiling for like five (laughs) or 10 minutes to get myself to at least a place where I am not about to completely lose it on everybody around me. Now, Rebecca, I know that you have actually written about this very thing in the past on your blog, Simply Rebecca. You had some ideas for sanity savers. Can you share some of the highlights of what we can do in that moment where we're just about to lose it? Right. So the blog post I wrote was called Six Simple Sanity Savers for When I Feel Like I'm Going to Lose My Mind. All right. Yeah. Talk about being honest. (laughs) (laughs) And in that post, I just shared about an extremely hard, frustrating day. One of those days where maybe nothing big happened, but it was like little thing on top of little thing on top of little thing on top of little thing which just made me think that I was going to lose it. And I feel like sometimes as as parents, especially parents of really little ones, that those are the types of struggles that make for a hard day more so than the big catastrophic things. It's, you know, the milk got spilled and then somebody played in a pot of dirt and spilled it all over the living room floor and then this happened and then there was yelling and fighting and pretty soon mama just feels like she's going to lose it. So I shared that day in my blog post and then I went on to just say that when I'm having these bad days, that's when I feel like it's even so much more important for me to take a mom time in, like you said, and just make time for myself. And so I shared six things that I love that feed me. Um, and those things won't feed everybody, but I talk about Oreos and reality <laughs> TV and watching YouTube and the life-saving app of Voxer, which we have talked about again and again and again. Um, the, the point is is not that this will work for everybody, but that it's okay to have those things during your day that are just for you and to do them on a regular basis and make them part of your routine and a way that you can retreat. And then on those super, super extra hard days, simple things like prayer and worship, 
talking to your husband, spouse, or best friend. Drink a glass of water. Try to get more sleep. Just take time to cuddle your kids. Go out for a walk and get some fresh air or just sit on the porch. Really try to shift your perspective and be thankful for the little things. And then above all, that you remember that you're not the only one who feels this way and that there are moms probably all across the country who are also having a bad day about the small little things and feeling like they're going to lose their mind. You're not alone and it's okay. Yes, absolutely. Those are such great tips. And I think you are so right. Figure out what works best for you. Um, I do. I did say that I do like to retreat to my room, but sometimes actually I will go right out into our backyard where we have a porch swing and it's under this big old, old pecan tree. And I will just sit out there. Nature really speaks to me and it's so calming and it feels very grounding to me. I, there's something about having my bare feet in the grass and sitting in the shade of a, of an old tree that is very, it's connects me to like the bigger picture, like you said, because sometimes we do feel like the walls are like closing in on us and nobody else is feeling as overwhelmed and stressed as we are. For me, going outside and being in nature helps me to remember that I'm a small part of a much bigger picture and it really helps to ground me. You know, for people who are listening who work full-time jobs, how do you navigate that at work? figure out what it is. Do you need to go to the office restroom with your essential oil blends that kind of help <laughs> you to feel uh, feel like you're not going to lose it? One of your calming blends or something along those lines. Is there a way that you can step outside the building for a little bit? I mean, all of us have those things that really help us to kind of pull it back in, even when we're feeling stressed and moody and grumpy. But we have to make it a priority. I think a lot of times... Depending on, you know, the background that we were raised in, a lot of times for women, especially, it's really hard to be able to say out loud, I am, I am having a really grumpy day um, or whatever verbiage that you choose to use because we feel like we got to keep it together for everyone around us all of the time. But we got to make it a priority to be able to say, I need this time out time. I got to get my stuff together and I'm going to have to do it in this way. Yeah, I would agree. I think that just acknowledging the bad attitude can bring about a big shift and and for the whole house. And I can speak from somebody being on the other side of it, that when my husband has a bad day, his tendency can be to kind of, you know, shut down and just not be as engaged. And then I'm kind of left feeling like, well, is there something wrong with me? Like, what's the problem? And every single time when he looks me in the eye and says, Rebecca, work today was just so hard. Mm-hmm. I'm just frustrated about this or that. It's like the floodgates of grace open up within yes. me. And I'm like, okay, I can relate. That's okay. It's not me. There's nothing we need to work on here. What can I do to help and make the situation better for you? Absolutely. And you know, I really, I think that translates to parenting too, because Beth was talking specifically about when you're the parent. I have found that to be true again and again, that I can trust, you know, the truth of the mood I am in that for that day, I can trust my children to that. Now, I don't want to burden them with like a lot of big stuff that they don't need to deal with. But like you said, there's just something so open about saying, I'm just having a really bad day that makes the people around you, the people that love and care about you want to give grace to you. And so my third one was to just follow up, you know, bad days don't last forever. Thank goodness. Now we may have some bad seasons when, you know, after the twins were born, I had postpartum depression really badly. I think back on that time and just, it's like a dark cover over those months. And I'm talking about, it was months of darkness. Now there were good days and bright spots in the midst of those, but it was such a dark season. And um, so whether it's a dark season or a bad day, I think, you know, when you come through that and you're on the other end of it, whether it's a day or however long, to just thank those around you. I often thank my kids like, gosh, thank you so much for being so kind to mommy today. Today was a tough one and we all have tough days, but you guys were so loving to me. And I just want you to know I noticed that and I'm just thanking you for it. And heaven knows I have thanked Kyle a million times for showing (laughs) grace to me when I'm having a rough day. He's heard that from me a lot. So... Those are some of the things, Beth, I hope that those are helpful. And I I think that the key is to acknowledge it, be honest about it, and do what you can to just kind of make it through that day, 
with, uh, with the grace that you can find within and the grace that other people are showing you. So, okay, moving on. Another question from our group is from Mary. Mary asks, I would love some tips for establishing routines and rhythms for families during the younger years. She says, with a one-year-old and a two-year-old, I feel like this is such a struggle. That was her question. We've actually had another listener question in the past that I, we have not had time to get to that was specifically about how do you create peaceful and loving bedtime routines. So I'm going to kind of bridge those together because I think when you have a one-year-old and a two-year-old, the best thing that you can focus on if you're wanting to start establishing routines is to start with a bedtime routine. Start with a small chunk of time. Bedtime routine is a great place to start. And honestly, I'm going to kick it to Rebecca on this one because she has you know, her kids have had a solid bedtime routine for a long time. So I'm going to let her talk about that. And then I'll share some more ideas in a minute about uh, building routines with little ones. So my children are five and three and our bedtime routine is very simple and it has been for a long time. Nate and I together as a team will maybe start acknowledging that we want to start bedtime about 30 minutes or so before we hope to have the kids in bed, give them some verbal warnings. We're going to get ready for bed soon. We're going to play just a little bit more and then it's time to get ready for bed. We change into pajamas. We brush teeth. We go to the bathroom. We go upstairs to bed. We read a book and we turn off the light and we leave. And it's really very simple. I mean, there's time for sometimes I'll rock the kids or rock Noah, especially when they were really little. Um, there's times in there for some prayer or some talk about the day or what's going to be happening the next day. But for the most part, that's that's the bulk of it. And we have been very fortunate that our bedtime routines haven't been stressful. We haven't had to sit in with our children until they fall asleep. There's not been a lot of crying. And I'm not sure if it's because we've just done this routine from day one. I think some of it definitely has to do deal with um, the temperament of your children. And if you have any big life things going on, moving to a new house or something can disrupt lots of things in that way. But it's been pretty simple for us. One, I, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. One thing that may pay a part in it for us is that I nursed my children for so long. Both of my children, I nursed them until about the age of two. And so that was, there was definitely like this downtime, this like cuddle time that they had with mom, maybe during those early years when going to bed and being separated was the hardest for kids. Like they learned to have the secure moment with mom. Sometimes they would fall asleep while nursing and not always. And then they were laid down and put to bed. I don't know if that has anything to do with why bedtime routine has worked so well with my house, but that's, that's what we've done. You know, I think that there, there probably is some truth to that because my girls also were really easy to transition to a bedtime routine. And I also nursed them until they were about two. Um, and so I think that there is something about those last moments of bonding and cuddling with mom, um, before bed that can really make for an easier transition for our younger ones. Um, Eliza, more than Daisy, no, Daisy's our oldest, Eliza Joy's our second daughter, way more than Daisy, she wanted to be rocked. In fact, after Daisy was about 12 months old, she had no interest in being rocked. Eliza Joy really liked that. And I honestly, I rocked her for a long time, like way past two. <laughs> but that's what she needed. She's a very intensely energetic kid. And I think that that rocking and like physical motion and then also the physical touch at the end of the day helped her really, really, really busy systems to settle down at the end of the day. So you're talking about temperament. I think it really, it can depend, you know, what it is that they need to wind down. Daisy, our oldest, really did not need more than a, uh, a bedtime book and a cuddle and she would easily go off to sleep on her own as a toddler, not a baby, <laughs> but as a toddler, she did. It's also really important to note that this nightly ritual of cuddling with my children, it didn't have to be done during breastfeeding. You know, if you're a bottle feeder or, you know, even if you've transitioned away from a bottle and they're no longer having a bottle at the age of two or whatever, it's, I think the most important part is that downtime and that little snuggle, perhaps with a book 
that's the key to getting this routine started and expecting now is the time to wind down. Now is the time that we're getting ready for bed and getting ready to go to sleep. Exactly. Yeah. With routines, it's all about consistency. So whatever that looks like in your family, that is what you should work with. So that's a great point to make, Rebecca. Um, Now the twins as is their custom, have completely upended everything I know to be oh, true. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I think it's because really that the rocking uh, rocking a, a toddler to sleep was my most used tool in my toolbox, and I just never have been able to figure that out. Would I put one to bed before the other? I have done that, actually, sometimes. I've never really been able to figure that out. And so my routine with them is like almost non-existent, but there are enough of the same elements every night they, if the weather's nice, we go outside and play after dinner. We come in for baths. We do pajamas. They get to run around and play upstairs, which we don't do a whole lot of during the day because my husband works from home. So they have kind of free reign upstairs, playtime with sisters and with dad and those types of things. And then we kind of start to settle in. And I do lay down with them either in their bed or we will, uh, the three of us will sometimes lay down in the living room. It just kind of depends if somebody skipped a nap, which happens a lot, then somebody's going to go to bed earlier. So I've had to learn to be a lot, have a lot more flexible approach to routine. But the thing about little ones is they love routine. They love repetition, even if it is so like, oh my goodness, I've got to do this whole bedtime thing again tonight. We do it like this every single night. But for toddlers who are experiencing the bigness of the world around them, there's so much new information and they're learning so much and doing so many new things every day that when they have those predictable routines, especially for settling in for the night. It is so comforting and so soothing to them. We talked about this, Rebecca, back in our episode where we were talking about uh, board books for babies and toddlers, the importance in this particular stage of life of having that predictability. Now, I can speak to having older children, the girls. I mean, we do. We have bedtime prayers that I have said over them since they were babies. It's the same words every night. Those words are comforting to them. But that's really, I mean, some nights they take a shower, some nights they don't. Right. Some nights they read a book before bed. Sometimes they watch a YouTube video. It's it's a lot more up in the air when they're older. But they're even still, there's those carryovers from when they were little, little, that still help them to feel safe and comforted before bed. One thing that I would add in that is when, when there have been times where our children have struggled to fall asleep right away, one thing that Nate and I have enforced to allow for us to continue to have our alone time or our downtime while they are maybe in the midst of a little bit of a falling asleep struggle is we've encouraged them to, if Grace, if you're having a hard time falling asleep tonight, Grace is my daughter's name, go ahead, read some books in bed. We'll turn the light on. You need to stay here mm-hmm. in your room, but read some books. We'll come back in and we'll check on you and we can turn the light off and you can go to sleep just a little bit later. Noah, bless his heart, he's three years old. He's still in his crib, and he's going to be there forever. (laughs) (laughs) But there are nights where he is babbling maybe an hour after we tucked him in, but he's in his bed, and that's okay. We're not not super strict about when we put you in bed, you have to instantly fall asleep. And I feel like that, that has helped us preserve some of our our alone time while they're working through some need to wind down more. Right, right. Yes. And that's so important too, as they get older and they have a little bit more autonomy and independence that they can handle. I think that's a great way to look at it. So to go back to Mary's question, when they are younger like that, I I do think start with a small chunk of time to build a routine practice it daily until it's like clockwork for everyone. Don't worry about your other routines because those will come in time. Once you've mastered that one, then move on and start building a new routine, something, a new routine that's going to maybe solve some problems in your family life or make things easier for you or something that they would enjoy. I will say that when my girls got to be school age, that is when we started having a pretty firm morning routine. In fact, now um, they're getting ready to go into fifth and second grade that is actually probably our most regimented routine of all is our school morning routine because they don't like to be late to school. And I have, even though I'm an ENFP and we can be a little bit flaky, I have like 
major kids can't be late to school issues. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get panicky and freaked out if I think they're going to be late. I'm sure they have learned that from me, but they get panicky and freaked out. And so we like, now that they're older, we can talk logically about it. Like this is the start time we have to start at if we're going to walk out the door at this time. And they know the order that things are going to go in in the morning. They know that they're going to get up and have, you know, I think we've talked about in the past before that we like to watch Good Mythical Morning first thing when we wake up as our morning, you know, kind of wake up stretch and talk time. They know exactly what time they've got to get their uniforms on and brush teeth and all of those things. And the beauty of a routine is once you do it enough, you don't even have to think about it. It's just like muscle memory. You just know what comes next. And even school age kids, they do like to know what comes next. Now, some kids need that more than others. Some kids can't function unless they have that predictability. And then others, you know, as they get older, they're growing into themselves and into their temperaments. Some kids are always just going to be less uh, enthusiastic, I guess you could say, about strict routines. But until they kind of come into their own where they can um, figure out those things on themselves, you as the parent can guide them and supervise them and help them in these routines to start to learn how to get things done for themselves. When they're little, little one and two-year-olds, Start with with something that feels manageable to you and don't stress out about the rest. That would be my advice for Mary. Do you have anything to add on those? The, the only thing I would say in kind of addition to that of start with something small and manageable for you is don't be overwhelmed by the world of Pinterest that has like oh, principal chore charts for this and that and like these little cars that you're supposed to have for like now you put your shoes on, now you brush your teeth and all these things. I, I just, I can't, that just, <laughs> I can't even form words about it. That overwhelms me and it just is not working in my house. So just yeah, start with start with what feels manageable to you. <laughs> yes, if those printable cards and chore charts and checklists make you happy as a mom and help you to approach your home environment with love and joy, go for it. Knock yourself out. But if exactly. it doesn't, if you're like Rebecca and I, <laughs> well, then, and sometimes I feel guilty, like that. I right. oh, well, my kids are old enough. I should be doing these types of things. I should have these kinds of printables out and be expecting this type of structure. Um, but my brain just doesn't quite work that way. And that's, and that's okay. Yes. So you got to figure out what works for you and what works for your children. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. One last question again from the Facebook group. So if you all are not in our Facebook group, we so invite you to join us over there because we constantly have great discussion on all kinds of things, some things related to what we talk about on the show and sometimes not. But this question also comes from the Facebook group and it is from Heather. And she asks, how do we create a loving atmosphere between siblings? I have two daughters, nine and six. Girl, I relate. I know. And they are unloving to one another much more frequently than loving. My heart and ears hurt to hear them fighting. Oh my gosh. Do I ever relate? And Heather, I'm going to preface my advice by saying the other day, one of my daughters called the other one a skank. So... (laughs) (laughs) Just recognize that we clearly in our home do not have this down yet. You know what, what else? Megan, that's not loving? What are you talking about? <laughs> she said it lovingly. It's not a compliment in your her. house. She's a skank and I love her. <laughs> it was not huh. said like that, believe me. Um, I do want to say this, though. My, I've talked about this on the, on the friendship show with Laura, the episode we did about friendship. But my, I have two sisters. My next youngest sister is 14 months younger than me. We fought like cats and dogs when we were growing up. And I'm not just talking about calling each other skank, although I'm sure that did happen. We would, even when we were teenagers, Rebecca, we would punch each other, hurt each other, pinch all kinds of things. And my mom, bless her heart. Now I'm like, I am paying for this tenfold because I was, we were so (laughs) terrible. In fact, when I was, um, let me think about this. I was 18. I was at home for the summer. It was before I went to school. It was before I went to um, college. My sister and I were supposed to be clearing the table after dinner. Normal request to make of your teenage daughters. Right. 
we were way too old for this, but we started chasing each other around the table about something. She pushed me. I fell against the dining room table, split my eyelid open. Blood is pouring out. My parents to this point were so used to our fighting. My mom was like, don't get blood on the carpet. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) So Heather, I think that you join in the ranks of parenting. All of us get so frustrated because it does, especially if you're like a feeler type, like, like Rebecca and I are, it's painful to hear your children, your beloved children at each other's throats. But doesn't mean it's totally normal, but that doesn't mean that you just have to let it go. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, be letting them push each other down and there's blood on the carpet. (laughs) So I'm going to tell, I'm going to share with you some advice that is actually not my own advice because this is stuff that I need to be learning again and again too. But my go-to guru for these types of questions is Dr. Laura Markham. She has an amazing website that is filled with resources. It's called ahaparenting.com. Of course, I will pop a link into the show notes for you, ahaparenting.com. I was looking on her website for some ideas, Heather, to share with you. She has a fantastic article. It is called How to Stop Sibling Fighting. Again, I'm going to put a link in the notes. She actually has a really comprehensive list of, um, hmm, let's see, 21 approaches that you can take just to prevent fighting. Wow. Things that you can proactively do, and again, Heather's question was like, how do you create a loving environment between siblings? Things that you can do as a parent to be proactive, to set your kids up to where that temptation to fight is not that overwhelming to them. And it's starting with little ones and on up to older kids. And so you'll definitely want to take a look at that. But the one that the part of the article that I wanted to focus on is intervening and fighting. She has nine tips for parents on that. Again, this this article is amazing. It has some really good, positive and proactive things to talk about. The first thing that she talks about is just staying calm. And I know for me, this is huge because when my girls start fighting with, with each other, it pushes all of my buttons, especially since I'm an Enneagram type nine, the peacemaker. Conflict and turmoil, it bothers me and it pushes my buttons. And so I so agree with Dr. Markham's advice here that you as the parent have got to make the effort. You're the adult. Stay calm. See what you can do to create a safe harbor for everybody in that moment. She goes on to talk about don't take sides or worry about who started the fight. That's that's something I get tripped up in. I'm like, who started it? What happened first? What happened first? She says, don't take sides. You got to treat each child the same when you start to try to referee, basically, between them. Then she talks about modeling civility and just talking about, you know, in our house, we treat each other this way. Now, if you're a person of faith, if you practice a religious faith, probably in your religious faith, there is some kind of teaching about kindness and respect, and you can really draw on that. Even if you don't practice any kind of um, formal faith, just talking about raising people who are good citizens in the world, we need to know how to treat each other with kindness and respect. And we learn those things first and foremost at home. The next one is one that I use a lot, and that is creating ground rules. And you can really build scripts around this too. One ground rule we had when they were much younger, like toddlers, was if you hit, you sit. So if they are playing and they start hitting each other, whoever the hitter is has to come sit by mom. You have to leave your activity, whether we're in public at a friend's house or at home, you got to leave what you're doing and you got to come sit by mom until you're in control of your body and in control of your feelings. And then you can go back and play some more. So whatever your ground rules are, keep those the same and keep them consistent. So they know, you know, what the expectations are and also what's going to happen if they don't meet those expectations. This next tip from Dr. Markham is one that we're really starting to use a lot now that the girls are older. And Heather, your girls are just a little bit younger than mine. I think this might be something you would want to start to look at too. And that's teaching negotiation skills. Again, we're preparing them to move on and out of our houses eventually as adults. It's not too early to start teaching them how to negotiate with each other. So teaching them like, Things like, let's try, how can we turn this into a win-win situation for everybody? 
Rebecca, you had a great tip when it comes to sharing toys, and this could be even with younger kids. What was it that you were telling me a little bit earlier about sharing toys? I have found that when I encourage my children to say, can I have a turn when you are done, that that produces better results than I want to turn. I want to turn. Give it to me. It's my turn now. Instead, the when you are done kind of empowers the child who already has the toy to to be, they they don't feel like this toy is being snatched away from them. They can fully enjoy it for however long they had intended. And there's just better attitudes all around when they talk that way. It's not foolproof by any means. And you might still need to intervene at some point if, you know, that child never decides that they are done. (laughs) Yes, yes. But it's been very helpful in my house. Yes, so good. Another way that you can teach kids to negotiate again, especially when they're older and they're starting to move more into abstract kinds of thinking instead of concrete, is how to sweeten the deal. And and Eliza's actually really good at this because she constantly wants Stacy to play like Minecraft with her, play different things with her. Daisy, my introvert, would rather slink off by herself and do her own thing. But so Eliza, she's getting really good at being like, okay, will you play Minecraft? You can make all the choices. And that's a really big deal for AJ because she's pretty bossy. So when she says to Daisy, you can decide this and this and this, if you'll just play with me, that is teaching her that some of the ways that you can, you know, learn how to negotiate with others is to recognize what it is that they would want out of the situation. Right. So um, she talks about if somebody is actually really hurt, to attend to them with empathy, saying things like, ouch, that must have really hurt. And I actually, again, good scripts to have in mind as a parent. I use that one a lot. And just kind of affirming instead of being like, get over it, you're okay, saying things like, I can tell she really hurt your feelings when you said that. Do you feel angry or you must be feeling pretty angry? Those types of things. Again, just teaching them to have that vocabulary that allows them to express what it is that's going on as they are in the midst of this war with each other. Um, That's such good advice just all around. I'm telling you, Dr. Markham knows where it's at. She's, she is fantastic with this stuff. And then another one, she talks about once everyone's calm, call the kids together. She has, um, she has a game that you can kind of play that might help bring some of these, bring some of these issues out in more of like a playful parenting kind of way. One thing that um, Kyle and I have talked about actually from the beginning before we have kids, before we even had kids, is that we are on the same team. And so that is something that we draw on a lot when we're talking to the girls. We are on the same team here. You may not always get along and you may not like it, but this is the family that you were born into and we are a team and we're going to work together to work these things out. So that's something that she kind of touches on there. So again, really fantastic advice. Another one that is a book that I read many years ago, probably need to dig it back out, is there's a book called Siblings Without Rivalry, How to Help Your Children Live Together So You Can Live Too. It's like sort of a classic approach to parenting book um, that's really good if you can find a copy. It's quite old, so I'm sure your local library, someplace like that, you can definitely find it on Amazon. It's another one with some good practical advice for how to set your kids up for success when it comes to loving sibling relationships. So I think most of us who grew up with a sibling can relate. And, you know, a lot of these things that we're teaching our kids as they're little, hopefully will carry over to their relationships with each other as adults. So really important to invest the time now as much as it hurts our hearts and our ears (laughs) to hear them fighting with each other to invest the time in helping them navigate this stuff now so that when they're older, they can continue to have a strong friendship. We have covered a lot of ground about building a loving and peaceful home environment. In the Facebook group, we had quite a few questions that we did not have time to get to, but over the course of the next week, we're going to be talking about those sort of drawing on the collective wisdom of the Sorta Awesome Hangout group. So I hope that you'll join us there so that you can hear other people's wisdom and advice on these questions about how we build a loving home environment. So Rebecca, before we go, please do remind everybody where we can find you all around the web. 
I am at simplyrebecca.com and then Simply Rebecca everywhere. Okay. Thanks so much for being here today, everybody. We so appreciate you listening in. And I would love to hear any feedback that you have on today's show. Thanks so much for being here and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today at Sorta Awesome. Show notes for this and every episode of Sorta Awesome are available at sortaawesomemegan.tumblr.com. While you're there, click on the Ask Us link to submit your questions for an upcoming episode. If you are enjoying the show, it would be so totally awesome if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, if you want to discuss today's episode, you can find me on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Meg or join our community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Sorta Awesome Hangout. I have to give a shout out to the band Prager for allowing us to use the song Strut for our in and out music. To find out more about Prager's nasty beats and pretty chords, go to pragermusic.com. I'll meet you back here next time as we discover explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.